Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We have seen a positively stunning amount of shenanigans in the Ohio Senate this week as they try and force all sorts of kind of sleazy legislation into the budget bill because they can't get it passed as law. We have some new elements to talk about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, the very busy Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Not to say that Layla and Laura aren't also busy. <laughs> Let's get moving. We've all seen the bad omens, but is Lordstown Motors officially doomed at this point? Jane Cahoon, I don't want to say I told you so, but man, I've been predicting this from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah, you did. I'll, I'll, I'll give you all the credit for saying you know, for for raising the uh, skepticism about this. But, well, the company insists it still has enough money to continue its day-to-day operations, and it's on track to produce about a 1,000 trucks by the end of the year, which is about half of what the goal previously was. But what sparked this doomsday scenario that you mentioned, Chris, was a filing that the company made this week telling federal regulators that it doesn't have enough money to to start commercial-scale production or sales of this highly touted endurance electric pickup truck that we've we've heard a lot about. They wrote in the filings that these conditions raise substantial doubt regarding our ability to continue as a going concern for another year. So um, just to set the stage here, the, the company, this company was expected to be the big savior of the Mahoning Valley economy after GM shut down its Lordstown plant and all kinds of politicians, including Donald Trump, Mike DeWine, praised them for for saving at least some of the jobs that were lost when GM closed. And Jobs Ohio pledged $4.5 million in grants. Uh, state officials also approved $20 million in tax credits. But then, then we started hearing about some some problems that you mentioned. The the pandemic delayed some of their production. They had problems with prototypes and with filling jobs. And and then in March, this investment firm betting against their success claimed that the company misled investors on its demand and its production capabilities. That led to a shareholder lawsuit and investigation by the SEC. So now, you know, after this filing this week, the, the company says it's it's evaluating various funding alternatives, including issuing more debt, obtaining credit from government or private sector sources, and making uh, arrangements with strategic partners. But yeah, but they they made clear that they don't have any confidence they'll be able to do that. Look, here's the thing. Ford is putting out a electric F-150. So if you wanted to buy an electric pickup truck, would you go with this unknown firm that very likely won't be around in a year? Or would you get the Ford, which has been around for a century? And I, I just, I don't, I don't see how they can make it. It's their, their, their prototype, you know, caught fire. And they, they, it, it, this just has been suspicious from day one. And this filing proves it. They don't have the longevity. And I, I just, I always wondered whether this was a real concern. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they the the spokesman that Jeremy Pelzer talked to yesterday, he he asked him, you know, what will will Lordstown Motors be in business in a year? And he said, well, I'm not authorized to speak about that. But he he stressed that they're having these active conversations about raising enough money to produce trucks on this commercial scale. They they want to deal with just commercial clients not individuals, know, but, but if, um, if you're a commercial client, you're going to go with the company that just told the SEC, we don't know if we'll be in business this time next year. Or are you going to go with Ford? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, I think, it, I think this filing pretty much dooms them. If you were thinking of buying one of their trucks, you would be rethinking it now because when you buy a vehicle, you want somebody around that can fix it and repair it and stand behind it. So it's a sad day in uh, Youngstown. And let's remember Donald Trump, Mike DeWine, all sorts of people trotted, trotted through there to say, look, look, it's back. Rob Portman yeah. appeared on yeah. the White House lawn with mm-hmm. one of these trucks with Donald Trump. And, and it was, all, you know, it was a big stunt. So you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What kind of a campaign can we expect from Jim Renacci as he challenges Mike DeWine in a Republican primary for governor next year? Jane Cahoon, we know exactly what kind of campaign we'll get. It's going to be a Josh Mandel, dirty, nasty, ugly, mean-spirited campaign. What, it's just surprising that Mike DeWine is the governor. Of all the ones we've had that were kind of bozos, he's the one that gets the primary challenge. I mean, when's the last time a governor had a primary challenge? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, but but uh, it's uh, it's just this Trumpian, you know, influence here where he's not, uh, you know, he's been branded as a rhino. And so uh, Renacci, you know, he's been openly mulling a run for governor for for a long time. He just kind of made it official on Wednesday. And um, so so he'll be challenging him next year in the Republican primary. People might recall that Renacci briefly ran for governor in 2018 before he was persuaded to sit, switch to the Senate race. After the aforementioned Josh Mandel abruptly dropped out of that race. And so Sherrod Brown uh, beat Renacci, of course, in that race. But, uh, you know, obliterated him in that race. <laughs> Not even close. Well, there were, you know, we could go on a tangent off of, you know, what went wrong with his campaign on that. But um, but given his background, you'd have to say that Renacci is probably the highest profile primary challenger DeWine's had. And, uh, you know, while Renacci, I remember him coming in and talking to us and the editorial board saying, you know, bragging about all of his bipartisanship in Congress. But yeah, but he, then he became a Trumpster and yeah, he completely he, changed. He was a chameleon. He's nothing like the guy who went to Congress. He's just a complete kind of wacko Trumpster at this point. Hey, look, here's the thing. Um, Mike DeWine, I think I, we haven't seen a poll about his popularity in quite some time. The last time we saw it, middle of the pandemic, it was really high. But but when you look at our, our roster of governors, you know, Bob Taft and Strickland and the chameleon John Kasich, DeWine is a genuine person. I think most Ohioans actually like him, Republican and Democrat. And this whole Trump campaign strategy that, that Mandel and, and uh, Renacci would use and others are trying to use in the country, without Trump there to fuel that engine, Trump was a master at this kind of thing. But with him not there, with him fading into 
you know, <laughs> to obscurity. <laughs> it just the, the 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 claims of the Mandels and the Renaissance come across so hollow. I mean, when he actually said, Renaissance actually said, DeWine is coming is, is another Cuomo and I have to stop that. From yeah, hitting did you Ohio. like that line? That's ridiculous. I mean, to, <laughs> to, to compare DeWine to Cuomo is absolutely preposterous. And to trot that kind of line out shows what kind of campaign this guy's going to run. It's going to it's it, I I don't think I just I would love to hear what you guys think. I just don't think this will be successful in the end. Ohio is fairly mainstream and Mike DeWine is genuine. I don't know. It all depends. I, I just wanted to mention a, a little interesting note, though, since we're talking about the Trump factor here. You know, Renacy um, hired Brad Parscale, the, that, the, Trump's former 2020 campaign manager. So he's, he's banking on that. But, uh, you know, according to Politico, Trump was critical of Renacy when he lost against Sherrod Brown. You know, he doesn't like losers. So um, I don't know if he's going to be able to count on an endorsement there. So maybe that gets to your question. Um, if he doesn't have an endorsement, you know, who knows? We've, we've talked about this before, you know, what the Trump factor is going to be by next year when this race actually takes place. Well, and a lot of people think it's disloyal uh, for for to run against an incumbent in your own party. So so I would imagine there <clears throat> there are some Republicans that won't like that. But I think it gets back to the what do people think of Mike DeWine? And I, I just I, when you talk to people, Republican and Democrat, about Mike DeWine, they might criticize some of the things he's done or some of his strategies. But they but they seem to think that at heart. He's got Ohioans as his as his goal, the the, the welfare of Ohio. And, and on the other side, you're going to have a guy saying all the stuff Mandel says. And we should point out Mandel's running for Senate. But so far, his entire campaign has been criticizing Mike DeWine, which makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, you know, it puts the Ohio Republican Party in an interesting spot, too, because they <laughs> until recently were run by Jane Timken, who, of course, is running against Josh Mandel and you know, they've stood behind DeWine pretty solidly, but they're they seem to be kind of dancing around. They re, they referred us to, you know, DeWine's campaign person. You know, they didn't speak on behalf of DeWine when, for this story, you know, so that was interesting. And it's just we have two people now running in Ohio that are almost cartoon characters for making ridiculous claims. It's going to be a long year of that stuff. <laughs> Um, I just, and, and Mike DeWine just got to be sitting there thinking, what, why me? I mean, nobody ran against Kasich. Why didn't they run against Kasich? They thought he was a rhino and you can make a stronger argument. He was a rhino to call DeWine a rhino. I mean, does anybody question his conservative <laughs> bona fides? Well, it's, it's only because of the coronavirus and, and what, how, you know, he took his responsibility seriously on that and did mostly follow science, especially at the beginning. And just, that just did him in with a lot of the ultra, ultra conservative people. Yeah, we'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are homeless people being banished from an independence hotel where Cuyahoga County had placed them to keep them safe? Leila Tassi, this is a discussion that is a preview of a story you've been working on for a week, a kind of an outrageous story. So why don't you give us the preview without giving it all away? Oh, 
without giving it all away. Well, okay. All right, give it all away. Let's do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, this this is a little sneak peek for our, our loyal podcast listeners. The uh, so the concept of using hotels to house Ohio's homeless emerged early in the pandemic when public health officials were predicting that COVID would devastate the homeless population with positivity rates as high as like 66%. So Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries, which runs the shelters for Cuyahoga County's Office of Homeless Services, moved really quickly to put these contracts into place with hotel owners who were willing to open their doors and help thin the numbers who were living in shelters where social distancing is really difficult. And it was this really creative solution that Mike DeWine (laughs) fully endorsed and encouraged. And because it protected the homeless population while also helping hotel owners stay afloat and pay their staff during this year where there were no travelers. And it worked. Cuyahoga County managed to hold COVID rates to just 7% among the homeless population. Well, so most of these hotels uh, were in Cleveland, but one of them landed in the suburb of Independence. This was just recently in mid-April of this year, the Ramada Inn on Rockside Road, right off the highway and far from residential areas, I should note before everyone starts sending me emails about that, opens, <laughs> opened its doors as a shelter for men who would have otherwise been assigned to the men's shelter at 2100 Lakeside downtown. And LMM provided transportation, around-the-clock security, all their meals, a bunch of social services, and they were, per this contract, going to pay the hotel $250,000 a month for use of their entire property, and the contract was set to run through August 31st, and about 150 men were sent there initially. Well, pretty much immediately, the mayor of Independence, Gregory Kurtz, began complaining about this arrangement in his weekly newsletter published on the city's website. He blasted the hotel owner for disrespectfully entering such a contract without the city's blessing. He promised residents that the city had increased police patrols near the hotel and deployed a series of surveillance cameras near the property. All let me of stop which, you there. Let me, yeah. let me stop you there for a second. Let, let's point out that this is a city that is largely white and most of the people Absolutely. at the hotel were, were black. And That's so right. this, this has very clear overtones of race that you Very have a mayor clear. that's saying, I don't want black people in my city. So go oh, ahead. Oh, yes. And of course, he doesn't say that directly. It's all dog whistling. So the hotel owner and the homeless advocates say that all of these, the, the cameras and the police presence, presence it eventually amounted to harassment of the men staying at the Ramada. And the mayor also talked about how state law doesn't permit hotels to rent a room to an individual for more than 30 days. And he suggested that the city might be filing a complaint with the state against the Ramada for that. And when it comes to this kind of hotel regulation, it would be the state fire marshal's office that would be responsible for enforcement. Well, I reached out to them. I reached out to the fire marshals and they told me in writing that there's nothing in the law that prohibits a hotel from checking someone out and back in to circumvent that regulation. And they also told me that they had received zero complaints about this Ramada's compliance with the law. And yet, about a month into the Ramada's contract, perhaps you know mid-May, LMM received a phone call from David Merriman, the county's director of health and human services, and he told them to immediately stop sending people to the Ramada and that anyone currently there would have to be rehoused within 30 days. And what, let's point out, this is the administration of County Executive Armin Budish that is behind this move. That's right. And what I know now is that Mayor Kurtz called County Executive Armin Budish and told him he wanted the men out of the Ramada and in independence, citing this 30-day limit in the state law as a reason to oust them, and Budish agreed to do it. 
He instructed Merriman to notify LMM that they had 30 days to move the men. And guess what? According to the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, a group of men were en route to the Ramada when that order came down. They had to be tracked down, returned to Cleveland, and facing no other alternative but the crowded shelter with a high COVID risk, they slept on the streets, and the coalition passed out tents to help them survive it. it because it, it of another a decision one of, of the, Armin Budich, who holds himself right. out as the social service hero, he left people on the street because and he then, buckled to pressure and from independence. Outrageously, Mayor Kurtz denies that he had anything to do with LMM's decision to move the men from the Ramada. In his newsletter to, to his residents, he wrote, quote, the Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries organization made this decision independent of the city, and only they can explain the reasons behind the action. But yeah. apparently, when he published that lie on the city's website, he didn't know that Budish had already acknowledged to me that Kurtz had called him and asked him to intervene. You know, yeah, look, this, this is, is this is absolutely outrageous case of nimbyism. And it's appalling that Budish would be complicit in this. The county is hiding behind the argument that this was all about being in compliance with that state law. But as I earlier explained, there were easy and creative ways around that 30 day limit that would not have run afoul of the law. And the county explored none of them. And here's the most important aspect of this, in my opinion. The group of men, as you said, Chris, who are staying at this hotel, they're 60 percent black. Independence is 95% white with a median income of over 100,000. Cuyahoga County, in the past year, declared racism a public health crisis, and yet Budish is unwilling to stand up for this population when it counts. That's, That's because for Armin Budish, a political crisis outweighs a public health crisis. It's not surprising that he buckled to the pressure from independence. He has shown repeatedly that that's the way things work. This is scandalous. So I, I'm looking forward to when this story goes up on our site later today, right? Yep, that's right. And we, uh, we hope people read it. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. Good work on this. I know it was hard to wrangle to the ground because the county kept trying to oh, dance around telling you well, the truth. Yeah, and the city too. I mean, I just I can't believe how, how many, uh, uh, you know, how much misinformation was being passed back and forth throughout this terrible you would hope the residents of independence would be embarrassed that their mayor was behaving this way but we'll have to see well you know what from what i understand i just want to throw in there some people some people in 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 independence had actually brought uh donations to the ramada which i so i want to credit some residents of of independence who who saw the value of this of this uh this project and uh yeah good we'll end it on a high note then you're listening to this week in the cle How bad is the PFA forever chemical problem in Ohio? Is this stuff raining down on us with every storm? Laura Johnston, we published a story from our sister site, MLive.com, that is doing some work on the Great Lakes. A lot of the stuff that we've done in the past. But this PFA story they did was was new, and it's scary. Yeah, honestly, I have not written anything about PFAS, which is how they pronounce it. And that's how, like, new it is in Ohio that... We haven't been paying a lot of attention to this chemical. We've been you know, worrying about harmful algal blooms in our lake. But um, they, they looked at MLive looked at data from the Integrated Atmospheric Deposition Network. This is a long-term Great Lakes monitoring program. It's jointly funded by the U.S. EPA and Canada, and they include data from rainwater collected in Cleveland and like five other places around the Great Lakes over two weeks in April. They found that the rain had a combined concentration of 
1,000 parts per trillion of PFAS compounds. Now, PFAS are man-made chemicals. They're manufactured and used in a variety of industries across the globe, and they've been made since like the 1940s. Some of them are no longer made here. They've been outlawed, but they can be imported in packaging or goods. They are so pervasive that you can find them in commercial household projects, products, a lot of nonstick products like Teflon, polishes, waxes. They're in production facilities or industries. And at this point, they can be in our drinking water. They can be in our food. They can be in living organisms, including fish. That's how pervasive. So the network has been analyzing these rainwater samples since 1990. Cleveland, Chicago, Sturgeon Point, New York, Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan, um, on Lake Michigan. And normally the samples range from about 100 to 400 parts per trillion. So think about how bad that thousand number in Cleveland really seems. And this stuff never goes away, right? That's why it's called the forever chemical. Yeah, exactly. And, And so they're saying there's no immediate risk and harm to our bodies for it, but they accumulate, they stay out there and it's a long-term environmental concern. I'm not sure if anybody really knows what the long-term consequences are going to be in our bodies or in the environment or in the rain. You know, obviously I remember growing up, we heard all about acid rain. Now it's literally raining PFAS. Okay. Good stuff from MLive. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are the Republicans in the Ohio State House planning to commit crimes? Why else would they be taking multiple steps to provide an easier defense for themselves in the event they are charged with crimes or accused of wrongdoing? Jane Cahoon, this is outrageous. Multiple steps. Bill Seitz, of course, is the leader of one, the defender of all things First Energy, the funder of the biggest corruption case in the history of Ohio. Bill Seitz tried to protect them uh, to, to the last. But what is going on there? Why why do they have to make it easier to defend themselves from accusations of wrongdoing unless they're planning to do wrongdoing? <laughs> yeah. You want me to ascribe motives to Bill Seitz, Chris? Uh, yeah. I'll go out on a limb and say, <laughs> yeah, this is nakedly political. It's Seitz is the top Republican leader, one of the top Republican leaders in the legislature. And as you said, one of the defenders of Larry Householder and the utilities, he has slipped an amendment into a bill. It's not the budget bill, it's a different bill that would remove the Franklin County prosecutor's exclusive authority to try Ohio public corruption cases. And in an amazing coincidence, this this just happens to be months after a Democrat was elected to uh, the Franklin County prosecutor's position for the first time in nearly 60 years. So this would allow lawmakers, candidates, and political groups accused of violating Ohio law to just choose to be tried in their home counties rather than in Franklin County as the current law requires. And let me let me stop you there, because because let's just point out that the entire criminal procedure in Ohio is based on trying you in the county where you commit your crime. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a change of venue that because of, of jury contamination or something, which is extremely rare, you're supposed to be tried where you committed your crime because that's where that you offended. Uh, right. This this is breaking with that so that they can get friendly juries. And again, why would you need to do this unless you're planning to break the law or have already 
broken the right. law. And, and you know, funny. there might be a perception that the uh, Republican who was in charge, you know, didn't go so tough on on the Republican dominated legislature, um, although he did. He did prosecute Republicans. But, you know, the, the way they describe this or the way the critics describe it anyway, like, let's say Larry Householder, who's, of course, still in the legislature, you know, gets accused of some ethical lapse or campaign finance violation or another misdeed on the state level. He could decide to have his pals in Perry County handle that case. You know, the same people who reelected him after he was indicted on a federal racketeering charge. Um, one of the Democrats, Jeff Crossman from Parma, said, do you want people like Larry Householder picking which county he gets prosecuted in? You want his drinking buddies or his poker buddies bringing the case against him? You know, it, so anyway, the, the Democrats say they got handed this amendment just like minutes before this committee adopted it, you know, cites claims, oh, I've been working on this issue for years and yeah, just right. waiting for the right time. He said he got the idea from Texas where, you know, then Governor Rick Perry was prosecuted by the Travis County prosecutor and ultimately cleared. But, you know, as you know, like, uh, well, maybe you know, don't know, but Austin is is like the blue spot in the in the red Texas. So, you know, that that's that motivated them in that state to do the uh, same thing. You the, know? the only protection we have here is that the feds largely prosecute the kind of corruption that that we often see. And so good because Bill cites another villainous act separately, though, they also the legislature is also trying to build a defense fund for mm -hmm. the House Speaker and the Senate president if they're sued over redistricting. So what that tells me is they're expecting to do bad things with redistricting and that people are going to challenge them and they don't want to have to pay out of their own pockets. What's going on here? This should I, be I mean, rejected out of hand. Well, it wasn't. It was adopted as part of the budget. I mean, have you ever seen such a clear signal that they plan to rig the districts in their favor and push through a partisan map that favors them that they're going to get sued over? Because otherwise, why would they put in this amendment that, that basically says state money will pay for their legal fees if they don't want to use the attorney general's office if they if they get sued over redistricting. So I, I mean, I can just only imagine how the voting rights people feel about this, the people who worked their tails off to get this thing on the ballot. And they ended up settling for something a little less than they hoped for because of the legislature. But they did get this constitutional, these constitutional amendments on the ballot and voters overwhelmingly approved, you know, this new fair district process. But it's obvious that the Republican lawmakers just plan to, you know, trash no, the whole Matt, thing or just Matt, try to get around it. Matt Huffman and Bob Cup are planning to rig the system. There's no right. other reason to build this into the budget. We have never had it in the budget before. They're planning to rig the system. They don't trust the attorney general to give them a vigorous defense. They want to go hire their own high-priced lawyers to, to fight it. Yeah, I guarantee it's, you it'd be like Republican Party lawyers. You this know. is just naked, naked gerrymandering right in front of us as they go into the reconciliation of the budget. I hope there's enough howling about this that in reconciliation yeah, I mean, it dies. You know, up until now, the voting rights people, you know, who pushed the amendment, they, they've been rather polite because I think they don't want to antagonize the legislators. But I'm telling you, if I were them, I'd be just furious about this. So we'll, we'll, well have to see. Matt Huffman, Bill Seitz, Bob Cup, all giving the clearest indication 
that they plan to do bad things. Otherwise, you yep. wouldn't need the special defense. It's a frightening time at the State House in Columbus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The IT chief's job at Cuyahoga County has been vacant for three years. So is the guy who County Executive Armin Budish finally wants to take it qualified to rein in the out-of-control and millions-over-budget project to unify the county computers? Leila Tassi, th- this, we've talked repeatedly about this computer thing that, that Armin Budish put together to make all the computers talk to each other. It has been out of control. The county council just has to keep pumping money into it. Can this guy that Armin Budish wants to run the department fix that? Oh, man. Time will tell if this is the one. Budish has named as the new chief information officer Andy Johnson. He's a vice president at the tech firm Diebold Nixdorf. Council has to confirm this choice, but since 2018, Budish has been using kind of a you know revolving door of interim leaders to cover the duties of that position. That's meant that county council hasn't had a say at all in the department leadership since 2016 because the county charter requires council to confirm the top IT position, but not deputy chiefs. And that's who has been filling in for that position. IT leadership first fell apart, as you said, back in February 2018, when then chief Scott Rourke was named in subpoenas as part of a corruption probe and Budish put him on leave. Rourke was never charged with a crime, but Budish retained him as an unpaid employee for 18 months while other IT officials were handling his duties. And then Budish finally fired Rourke in late 2019, a few days after council members started to wonder why he was just kind of in limbo. He then ended up suing the county for how all of that was handled. And he thought he should have been paid during his leave or allowed to return to work. And the county eventually settled with him for $245,000. So he was in the midst of all that craziness and inconsistent leadership in the department when we started to see these cost overruns on the enterprise resource planning project you mentioned. That's the project to streamline the county's different computer systems and make them more efficient. And it's just taking so long, uh, so much longer than initially projected. And, And it was supposed to cost $25 million, and now it's ballooned to $36 million and counting. So this new guy, Johnson, has a background in precisely this kind of project. His resume notes that he did similar work at his last two jobs as vice president of Diebold's digital program management office and before that as a consultant for progressive insurance. So we'll see. And, you know, Courtney Astolfi will be paying very close attention to how this plays out. Well, it'll be interesting to see how outraged the county council is about the ridiculousness of this project as they question him during his confirmation hearing next week. That's if right. he can do it, more power to him. And finally, a solution to this to this boondoggle. It'll be good to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Got to do one more because it's about Lake Erie and Laura's here. <laughs> <laughs> How unusual is it to get a big tract of land on Lake Erie that suddenly can be developed into something? Laura, this was big and surprising news that broke yesterday about a power plant that will be dismantled. Yeah, this is such big news for Avon Lake and for the rest of Cleveland. Anybody who's been on the lakefront, if you look over to the left, you see this giant power plant um, at a smokestack, and that is going to be gone eventually. So that tower will come down. The This came out in a letter from the mayor of Avon Lake yesterday. Gen On is the company that owns it. They're selling this, the spot to a successor. They're not naming that. And the idea is that that company is going to clean up and then then we'll have 40 acres of lakefront to develop. And no one really knows what it's going to be. There's a possibility the city could buy it. There's a possibility for more housing. It's all going to depend on the buyer 
and the seller. Uh, but think about that. I mean, it is just, we don't have undeveloped green space on the lake. Obviously, this is a brownfield site. It's going to have to be cleaned up. But this plant has been there for 100 years. Uh, it only runs about 50 days a year. It employs about 55 people. But it is a blight on the landscape. And I'm really excited about this opportunity. Yeah, you hope that they use the opportunity to provide access, public that, yes. access to the lake. They don't just make it a place for expensive homes that wall off and, the lake again. And they were very clear about that in the letter from the city saying that this we want public access to the lake. And, and Avon Lake has some parks on the lake. They've got a little boat launch, too. But um, this is an incredible opportunity. And, and, you know, we talk so much about the asset that we have and connecting it. So I hope that you know, Avon Lake is in Lorain County. I hope that we're talking between counties and between municipalities and, and make this the best spot it can be. Can I jump in here just really quickly? I, I happen to know a couple people who work at this power plant, and I, I think that we shouldn't dismiss the fact that these 55 jobs are going to be lost. It's I, I really sympathize with, with, with those workers who are going to be losing their jobs, and I'm I, I really hope that the the mayor makes good on the city's promise to help them find work beyond yeah, this. I can't imagine I, how blindsiding this must be for them. I don't mean to dismiss that at all. Oh, no, and I wasn't. No, no, oh, I'm sorry, Laura. And, I wasn't and, attacking you on and, that. I was just saying in, in general. Gen on could find, there's a possibility they could find jobs with the company elsewhere. And I hope that they do because you're right, 55 jobs lost. And it, and it was probably blindsiding. I think they found out in the morning and this oh. news release came out in the afternoon. So not a lot of time. Um, in the grand scope of things for, for Lakefront, this, I totally agree that, that we don't want to lose jobs. And I hope that they, okay. yeah. Got to wind it down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good stuff today. Lots of outrage. We're over time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news. 